This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 82. Today, our special guest is Susan Denser. We talk with Susan about the complexity of healthcare, healthcare policy, and the challenges and polarities leaders face today. Stay tuned. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Well, hello, everybody. It's Tracy. And it's Michelle. Welcome to another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And We just finished another episode and we're in different places this time. So we might sound a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing the remote thing (laughs) across the country. Remote podcasting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we've done a, this is a phenomenal episode. You're not going to want to miss this. I think this, you know, this interview was just so enlightening and she actually stunned us into silence. I think once or twice. Yes. (laughs) Which is hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she did. Um, I just think uh, Susan's experience was so phenomenal. And um, I think the silence that Tracy's speaking about is, is we just were taking in the complexity of healthcare and yet the call that she definitely has been bringing to work that we have got to transform healthcare, which is kind of like our jam too. Yeah, well, what we've been doing for 30 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it certainly is complex. And she is a very wise woman with a breadth of experience and knowledge around all the complexities in healthcare and the things that are necessary to to transform it. So let me uh, do a little bit deeper introduction to Susan herself. So Susan Denser is Senior Policy Fellow for the Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. It's based in Washington, D.C., where the center's research team is located, and she focuses on aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic response, health system transformation, such as through telehealth, biopharmaceutical policy, health coverage expansion, and other key health policy issues. Now, she is one of the nation's most respected health and health policy thought leaders, and she's a frequent speaker and commentator on television and radio, including PBS and NPR, and an author of commentaries and analysis in print publications such as Modern Healthcare, the New England Journal of Medicine, Catalyst, and the Annals of Internal Medicine. And she's also the editor and lead author of the book, Healthcare Without Walls, a roadmap for reinventing U.S. healthcare. And that's available on Amazon for anybody who's interested in picking that up. Yes, yes. And from 2016 to 2019, Susan was president and chief executive officer of NEHI, the Network for Excellence in Health Health Innovation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization then composed of more than 80 stakeholder organizations from across all key sectors of health and healthcare. From 2013 to 2016, she was senior policy advisor to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropic focused health and healthcare in the United States. And before that, she was the editor in chief of the policy journal Health Affairs. From 1998 to 2008, 
She was the on-air health correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Denzer wrote and hosted the 2015 PBS documentary, Reinventing American Healthcare, focusing on the innovations pioneered by the Geisinger Health System and spread to health systems across the nation. She is also a member of many, many academies, boards, and councils, uh, giving her advice to many across our country. And without further ado, here's Susan Denzer. Welcome, Susan. We are so excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much, Michelle and Tracy. It's great to be with you both. Yes. So we like to start every podcast episode out with a little fun banter so our listeners can get to know our guests. And uh, you've had a very public life um, as a journalist, writer, commentator, health policy leader. So tell our listeners a little bit about something from Susan's private life, maybe a hobby or passion that you have that a lot of people might not know about. Oh, boy, Michelle, I think people will die of boredom because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't live all that exciting a life. Uh, I live a very rich life, uh, but it's pretty non-exciting, you know, full of friends and family and all the other things that uh, none of us should ever take for granted. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The only thing I can think of that's mildly interesting is uh, I spent a lot of time in my life in Japan Uh, and developed a great love and admiration for Japanese gardening. So I've actually tried to create a little version of a North American equivalent of a Japanese garden in my uh, home backyard here in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And uh, I always have dreamed that if if there is such a thing as reincarnation, I'll come back as a master Chinese gardener who really knows how to do it right. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love that story. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. What was it that took you to Japan? Uh, I had a fellowship there uh, I, under something that at the time was called the U.S.-Japan Leadership Program. Uh, and it was run by the uh, U.S.-Japan Foundation. And it was really a desire. This is back at a time when we thought that Japan was our arch nemesis in the uh in the economic realm. And there was a belief that uh, there really needed to be fostering of more understanding between uh, people in the U S and people in Japan and uh, particularly among uh, what, what was deemed at the time up and coming leaders. (laughs) Uh, So I was lucky enough to uh, get a fellowship and spent a fair amount of time studying actually the impact of the eight, the rapid aging of the Japanese population Mm. And the impact on the healthcare system there, as well as uh, their long-term care systems and even their pension system, uh, and it gave me a great uh, carte blanche to travel around Japan, get outside of to- Tokyo. Was fabulous, but it was really enriching to get outside of Tokyo and meet a lot of people uh, around Japan. And as I say, one of the things that I came back with was was this great. Everlasting love of uh, Japanese gardening, Japanese ceramics as well, but especially gardening. That is awesome! What a what a privilege to be able to have that experience. It was great. It was great. Well, Susan, one of the things that we all have in common is a passion to transform the U.S. healthcare system, and we've all been in it for a little longer than we like to admit. It's not. It has not been an easy task. Um, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about the focus of the Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, where you're the senior policy fellow today? Absolutely. Happy to do that. So uh, Duke University, of course, has multiple schools, uh, the undergraduate school, of course, the School of Public Policy, Sanford, the business school, the medical school, et cetera. Uh, But up until 2016, it didn't have a central place where all those people across all the schools who were really interested in health policy had a place to come together. And then a Duke Medical School alumnus, Bob Margolis, uh, one of the founding people behind the Health Partners organization years ago, uh, endowed Duke with with a a fair chunk of change in order to create this Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke. 
Uh, and happily enough for all of us, uh, Duke was able to recruit Mark McClellan, who had been a CMS administrator and before that uh, FDA commissioner, Food and Drug Administration commissioner, to come and lead the center. So Mark has been leading the center ever since that point. Uh, he, he and I had known each other for many years uh, during his uh, government service. And I, I was, happily enough, I was recruited to be among uh, the, his initial advisory board when the center was created. So, uh, and then in 2019, uh, various conversations among us and a lot of overlap in our interests led to me going over there uh, on a permanent basis. The center's focus um, has tracked a lot of uh, what, what, what would have imagined would be true based on Mark's experience, but also, of course, some of the very preeminent policy issues that we face as a country. A lot of it has been focused on health system transformation. Mark, of course, at CMS was uh, involved in a number of, of uh transformation issues at the time, uh, basically standing up the Medicare Part D prescription drug program uh, was part of it, but also in effect uh, being very much involved in the move from volume to value, the value-based transformation, which really began to take hold uh, in those years. And then of course flourished once the Affordable Care Act was enacted. So Mark uh, has really been very, very interested in this transition uh, from volume to value. He has served for, uh, for a number of years on the uh, so-called Learning in Action Network, the Healthcare uh, Transformation Learning in Action Network as co-chair, and trying to think in various ways of how we really move to this uh, value-based uh, environment across the entirety of the health system has been a real passion of his and of the center uh, for for uh, since really since its inception. So that's been a big thrust of our work. The other big thrust of our work has been a lot of work around biopharmaceuticals and medical products, uh, devices in particular. And how do you bring those entities also into the value framework has been a very important part of the focus because of course, to a large degree, those until relatively recently have been left out of the value framework. And the notion that we really should be buying all of what we buy in healthcare, including biopharmaceuticals, including devices, with a true understanding of the value that those contribute um, has, has also been a very important part of our work. So I would say those are the two largest domains. We've also had work uh, around global innovation and how we bring global innovation to the United States. And now, of course, we're getting very, very interested uh, as we should, as we have been all along, but perhaps not as prominently as we all now recognize should have been the case. We're now very interested in health equity and how we continue to advance health equity. And how do we even try to think about how we do that through transformation and, and payment issues to ensure that we're paying not just for quality in healthcare and value in healthcare, but equity in healthcare as well. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's um, such a broad spectrum of very important things that the center is focused on. And I really appreciate you kind of giving us the background on it because I hadn't really heard that before. So thank you for that. Not yeah. at all. Yeah, very yeah. significant and important yeah. work. So as the senior policy fellow, what like, where do you focus your energy and your time? I, I'm sure you have an accountability to the whole of what you just shared, but where are you really focusing your energies and your efforts? Well, I have to say at the moment, I divide this into um, BC before COVID and then DC during COVID. Um, <laughs> so BC before COVID, I was particularly interested in the in the value-based payment and the opportunities for delivery system transformation that value-based payment would engender. Um, we know that so many of the things that many of us think need to happen in healthcare, um, I was particularly interested in the movement of care out of conventional institutional settings closer to people in their homes and communities, taking advantage of a lot of the technology that already exists, and really figuring out a way to get healthcare more to people as opposed to dragging people into healthcare, and especially getting health into people and communities. 
uh, so that we've got a healthier population and not not just one that waits for people to get sick and then throws them into the most expensive healthcare system in the world um, to fix them up. So I was very interested in that. And, and of course, when we think about the current business model of healthcare, which still is so heavily rooted in fee-for-service, the, the sort of pre, preeminent barrier against much of this transformation happening is the existing business model. It's the notion that we largely float our hospital systems off of elective surgeries, for example, uh, that, the, that we can't conceive of a world where hospitals were smaller than they are or had less of a physical footprint than they do because we were actually delivering more care in the community. We can't get past that because of the current business model. I was interested in how we break that apart and create more value-based systems, population-based payment models that really create the platform for innovation. Um, so that was BC <laughs> before COVID. Um, DC during COVID. Uh, we've continued some of that focus. We've been very interested in watching the take-up of telehealth, obviously, during the, uh, during the pandemic, uh, trying to figure out a path forward for that after the pandemic is part of our work now. Also, understanding where telehealth has and has not worked, what communities have and have not benefited from telehealth capacities, et cetera. But also beyond that, we've done a lot of COVID-specific work on ramping up diagnostic testing. Uh, now vaccine distribution obviously has loomed as a foremost issue. And even number of particularly pandemic-related efforts that we've been involved in. And then separately, I also led uh, last year a uh, seminar series uh, under the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute to try to do some very rapid education and learning uh, from systems that were coping with the early phases of the pandemic and try to educate systems around the country about how they should think about doing things like setting up incident commands to manage uh, the crisis, uh, how they would deal with issues around uh, personal protective equipment, how they would deal with nurse staffing issues, how they would reconfigure their emergency departments, all of that. Uh, as we know, created a really rapid need for very fast learning across the country. And uh, through PCORI, we were able to bring this webinar series to bear and, and try to help people get up to speed as quickly as possible. Yeah, it, it has, uh, I guess one of the things that I think has been one of the biggest benefits, you know, to experiencing this pandemic at this point in time has been um, the breaking down of walls is kind of how I look at it, right? Like seeing it, seeing organizations within communities partnering in ways they never dreamed they'd partner mm -hmm. in the past. People that are, you know, organizations that are, are competitive with each other, really coming together to collaborate for a common purpose. It really gives me hope. I don't know, uh, Susan, what you're thinking about that, but, you know, when you said we can't conceive, right, of our business model differently, of our systems differently, I would have, I wonder if you see any hope in kind of like a, a um, kind of breaking that apart and people maybe now being a little bit more aware and open of what the potential is and what we can do. Have you, have you gleaned that kind of sense from what's been happening? I, yes, very much so. Although I have to say, um, I think that the people who were believers in value-based payment before have become, if anything, even more doctrinaire about it. And maybe there's been a little bit of shift on the skeptics. I'm not so sure there's been a wholesale transformation as yet. I think a lot of systems and entities are still waiting for the world to go back the way it was, <laughs> to be honest about it. Yeah. But to look on the bright side, uh, let's take, for example, the fact that there, uh, there were only two entities that took their CARES Act funding, which, of course, was released last year under the CARES Act, one of the pandemic relief uh, pieces of legislation, uh, basically to uh, shovel a lot of money to health systems to compensate 
for the fact that there had been this big loss in volume and give them the resources to continue to go on, uh, treat non-COVID patients, but also particularly to stay in business during the pandemic and treat COVID patients. Um, Of all the money that went out uh, in that CARES Act funding, one organization sent back most of the money first. That was Kaiser Permanente. Why did they send the money back? Because they didn't need it. They were, you know, it's a capitated system. They're paid on a population basis. They had the money. They weren't depending on a volume of elective surgery that went away in order to give them the resources to survive. So they kept a small share of the money for their Maui health system, which is basically a public health system that Kaiser also runs on the, on the island of Maui in Hawaii. They kept the money for that because that's still running on fee-for-service. But for the rest of the Kaiser, of Kaiser, they just sent back the money. Now, it's also true that HCA, the company formerly known as Hospital Corporation of America, sent back its money too. That's for different reasons. That's a very large, obviously, for-profit health system that happens to have treated more COVID patients than any system in the country. So they had a lot of resources. They sent back the check too. So. If you sort of drill down on that, the only non, the only allegedly nonprofit system in the country that could send back that money was Kaiser Permanente. What does that tell us? It had the resources to repurpose funding on things like providing food for people who couldn't get out of their homes, right? Mm-hmm. So that tells you a value-based entity creates this capability, and not to put too fine a point on it, What entity had already been doing 60% of its care virtually pre-pandemic that was able to very quickly ramp up to doing 80% of it virtually? Kaiser. Kaiser. Right? So what's wrong with this picture? Now, there are many other systems in the country that have also embraced value. I can also think of Geisinger. and as, as some of the leading folks at Geisinger wrote in a recent article in the Harvard Business Review, what they're now doing is set, taking stock in the pandemic and saying, okay, we knew this beforehand. We had value-based payment models. We have our own health plan. We have a lot of Medicare Advantage patients. That's given us a unique space to innovate in care delivery because anything we lose on the hospital or health system side, we make up on the health plan side. So we've been able to make this experiment work. Now let's grow it. Now let's do it even bigger. Let's take Geisinger at home and extend that model even more. Let's look at any of a number of ways where we can continue this transformation of value. And I do think there's a fair amount of the healthcare system that is on board with that. There's also a lot that's not. Uh, And also there are commercial payers who I think still haven't really fully embraced the model because some of them, I think, are afraid that the logical extension of a move to value is that you stop needing insurance companies to essentially be those middlemen and those intermediaries. I think that's the wrong way to think about this transformation. I think there's plenty of opportunity for everybody to get on board in new delivery systems and new platforms, Mm -hmm. but not everybody is there on that page. And we'll just have to see as we come out of the pandemic, what really happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see after COVID. (laughs) (laughs) What's the the AC part of this, right? Uh, what that will be. So thank you for the work that you're doing and the eyes that you're putting on this, right? So you're you're mm-hmm. watching and learning. And I just so appreciate that there are people like you that are doing that, right? So that we can leverage this time to our right. best advantage, right? Not to let it bring us down, but to catapult us forward. That's the right. hope that I see uh, inside all of it. You also were the editor of the book, Healthcare Without Walls, um, a roadmap for reinventing U.S. healthcare system. And that was prepared by the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, or NEHI, right? Um, and it was published in 2018. Can you tell our listeners a little backstory on how that came to be? Um, what, 
you know, what was behind that initiative and why the book was written? Yep. Well, as I mentioned, I've been interested for quite some time in this notion of healthcare without walls. Even before I went to Nehi, I was um, doing a lot of thinking about this and speaking on the topic. Uh, and when I got to Nehi, I thought that there was an opportunity to really try to dissect what's, what's the potential to do this and what are the obstacles standing in the way of it. Uh, so we were able to apply for a, a grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, which gave us the resources to run this about a year-long project where we brought together a lot of thought leaders, a lot of uh, partners in health systems and in industry, et cetera. And we created a series of work groups to explore, first of all, what's the potential for healthcare without walls, particularly on the technology side. Because, I mean, you know, going, I always joke, um, you know, I remember being a little kid and watching the Jetsons in the 1960s, <laughs> that cartoon series. And if you look at how the animators of the Jetsons in 1960 thought people would get healthcare in the space age, they thought they would get it over something that looked like television sets, right? Mm -hmm, right. You have this telehealth communication with somebody. And the reason that the animators were thinking that way is we knew we had some telehealth going on in the 1960s, right? We knew the Defense Department was experimenting with it and a few civilian health systems were just dipping their toe in the water. So it was already out there. Uh, and it just reminded me of the famous phrase of the science fiction writer, William Gibson, the future has already arrived. It's just unevenly distributed. And even back in the 60s, it was very unevenly distributed, but it was there. The future was there. So how come all these years later, we didn't have telehealth going on routinely, particularly when we, had, we were living through the information age, the internet, we were increasingly comfortable with doing many, many things virtually, but healthcare was stuck in this paradigm of it can't happen unless two people are in the same room together. And that made sense to me for aspects of care that require the actual laying on of hands. You know, if I get into a terrible traffic accident, I'm not going to want a telehealth visit with my trauma surgeon, right? I'm going to want to be taken to a major trauma center and have that everything involved in that laying out of hands process. But there's a whole lot of healthcare that is not about laying out of hands. It's just about exchanges of information. And, you know, what symptoms do you have? How long have you had them? When did you have your last mammogram? That's all information exchange. It just, I just couldn't understand why that hadn't moved to a more virtual platform. And not to put too fine a point on it, I couldn't understand why I couldn't email my doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't understand, you know, these, uh, I just, there were just so many things that seemed off about healthcare and inflexible that I really uh, was motivated to lead this project and really start to think systematically, what are the barriers? What are the enablers to this? And how do we turn more of the barriers into enablers? Not because I thought or anybody thought that uh, it's, it's just uniquely better to have healthcare at a distance, but because of the benefits of that, uh, the benefits in terms of convenience for people at the simplest level. Also, the, the whole notion of distributing the knowledge that we have in healthcare more equitably across the country. Why is it that you, if, a can if you're a cancer patient in a rural area, why can't you avail yourself of the most sophisticated knowledge in the most advanced cancer centers elsewhere in the country unless you can go there, unless you can afford to go there, right? It just seemed to make no sense to me. Uh, so how do we seize these opportunities uh, to really democratize care, spread it more equally around the country, advance knowledge, take advantage of technology, most of which has already been invented, right? And, and really take that up into the system. That's really what I wanted to understand. So the project, Healthcare Without Walls, really was an effort to look systematically at those barriers around payment, around workforce constraints, um, take into account human factors issues, 
uh, about how we build new systems and make them work for human beings, both as patients and as people providing the care. And that's what led to uh, the publication of that book. Wow, that's a significant body of work. And, and I, you know, out of all of that work came a number of recommendations, right, that each of the work groups that work on the, these different areas focus on. Can you share just like, there's a lot of them, so you can't go through all of them, but just share the key ones that you think are really just most significant, have the yeah. biggest, broadest impact? Well, first and foremost, it, it's payment, as we were talking about yeah. earlier, because you know, if, if you send a healthcare system a check every year, you know, and say, here's fill in the blank, $15,000 to take care of Susan for a year, right? And you decide the best way to take care of Susan, right? And, and actually, you know, the former CEO of Kaiser used to say, if he were starting Kaiser today, he would start by building the technology platform first, not building a lot of the physical structures, because we know that platform now exists, and that's going to be a primary um, highway of care, whether it's actually for virtual care or for any other number of other reasons, running your electronic health record system right? Everything else, understanding what's going on with your population, doing data analysis, uh, et cetera. So essentially, if you have a payment system that basically says to a healthcare system, you figure out how to do this within this $15,000 a year budget for Susan. You don't basically say, hmm, how can I gin up enough activity out of Susan you know, how, how, how many knee replacements can I get her to undergo or visits or whatever else? Because that's what I need to float my boat. But I'm really thinking, no, my job is to keep Susan healthy within that 15000 bucks a year. What do I do to enable that? And what do I do to forestall her healthcare needs? Because I'm going to keep her as healthy as possible. Right. So that is, was the number one recommendation move as quickly as possible to value based payment, value based constructs. Then um, regulation was another huge issue because there are all kinds of regulatory barriers in healthcare. A lot of them put in place for legitimate reasons, but that impinge on the this care delivery transformation. Some of them are at the federal level, but a surprisingly large number of them are actually at the state level. Because of course, as we know, the states under the constitution have primary responsibility for regulation of healthcare as a police power of the state. So things like, for example, in New York City at Mount Sinai, when they were standing up a hospital at home program, uh, where they were able to take patients who often were hospitalized in the hospital, but had relatively low acuity needs that could be managed at home. If you, in effect, took the hospital to their home, mm -hmm. right? They had a really great idea, which is if people come in, if elderly people in particular, let's say you have an elderly person with pneumonia who comes in, who could be hospitalized at home. If that person is treated initially in the emergency department and stabilized by a team, including a registered nurse, but then it is collectively decided that that person could be hospitalized at home, shouldn't you have the registered nurse who treated that patient in the ED go with the patient to home for that initial stage and make sure all is well? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? Of course it would. Mm -hmm. What could you not do? That, <laughs> because in New York State, hospital nurses are licensed as hospital nurses, home care nurses are licensed as home care nurses, and near the twain should meet. So they had to do a workaround, which is that there had to be a handoff to the visiting nurse agency and the home care nurses. Okay, that's a regulation that made sense, I guess, once upon a time. It doesn't make sense today, and it doesn't make sense in this model. And even though New York State officials 
several years ago recognized this and thought it needed to change, it still hasn't. Right. Right. So there are all kinds of regulatory constraints like that that have to be worked through. Uh, and we recommended really what has to happen is people have to sort of create the archetype of what we want healthcare to look like and then go back and systematically re- rework these regulations, particularly at the state level. Um, other recommendations, I'll just quickly summarize. We had a lot of recommendations around the workforce both in terms of educating and training people differently to provide health care. A lot of programs now are starting to train uh, uh, students and others in remote care delivery and telehealth, et cetera, et cetera. We think that's really important. We think we probably have to create new people in the system who have new responsibilities. You're going to want to have maybe a technology coordinator uh, who goes out to people's homes and makes sure that their internet broadband is working and other things like that if you're going to have a really effective hospital-at-home program. And then finally, this area of human factors of really understanding better, because it is fundamentally a human enterprise, how do we basically make this work for everybody in the system, both the people providing care, the patients providing care, and putting a really sophisticated human factors lens on all of that and understanding how we can assure maximum quality of care, maximum safety of care, et cetera, uh, was also a really important part of our recommendations. Yeah, when you're working on things like this, why it just makes the complexity of healthcare and healthcare delivery kind of slaps you in the face, doesn't it? I mean, there is just so yeah. many, so many moving parts and so many things to think about. And that's why this is just so challenging. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. When uh, a, a very sort of simple uh, conclusion that we drew uh, about why healthcare without walls wasn't with us and thriving was because it's healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are just so many ways in which um, the constraints get to any kind of innovation get built up. And uh, it's very hard. It's very hard to innovate in the healthcare space. Incredibly important, but very difficult. Right. Yeah. yeah. But again, through the pandemic, we've made some great strides with telehealth. Right. And, and so we've, we're, dem- we're having some demonstration of the impact of that and the value of it. So the hope would be keep it going, not turn it back to what it was, right? Keep it going. Um, and f- first of all, recognize what else you have to do to make it happen. I mean, one of our recommendations in the book was on the technology side, universal high-speed broadband. Right. You know. How could we even think that we could run a modern economy today in any way without having nationwide high-speed broadband? If, if For education now, we know we're going to need that. Mm-hmm. For healthcare, we're going to need it. It is as important a piece of the healthcare infrastructure as anything else now. And we don't have a plan to get to nationwide high-speed broadband. Uh, so that was, that was, as I say, part of uh, another piece of our recommendation. I think sort of recognizing all, all the roles and, that have to be played by different entities in the system, the federal government to be forward-looking on those questions. I'm really excited that the incoming Biden administration plans to inject about $20 billion into a, a nationwide infrastructure plan. Some people think we're going to need $100 billion, um, so maybe it's closer to that number, but at least we have to start that, down that road. And then I think, again, the states need to look at this and say, what of our existing regulations do we need to dismantle? And health systems have to do it. And and again, you know, thinking that we're going to go back to the world as the way it w- was or that we should – you know, that thinking should, in my mind, be outlawed. Um, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, um, I, I'm going to be involved uh, later today in a conversation about what should happen with telehealth. And there are lots of people who think, well, what we need to do now is all of the flexibilities that CMS put in place to pay for telehealth in the fee-for-service environment 
should all remain in place and we should continue to pay. We should have CMS go back and write 500 more codes to pay for individual pieces of telehealth and that that's the way the world should work. I don't think so. I think we should say, we'll pay for telehealth as long as you're in a, in a value-based payment model, volume-based, volume-based payment model. No value-based payment model. Yes. Yeah. You get a check from us in a population payment environment, whether it's from CMS or a, a commercial payer, you, you decide health systems. We trust you to figure out what care can be virtual, what care has to be in person, how you build a hybrid model Nobody's got all this figured out. You figure it out, but we trust you. That's the message I think we should be sending. Not, here's here are another 50,000 things you can bill for. Uh, because we know what that's gotten us in the past when we've just created, you know, innumerable things that we can build for and code for. Right, right, right. Well, what you're really bringing forward is something that Trace and I have really recognized over the last 30 years doing healthcare transformation is there are things that are paradoxes, polarities, dualities, and we have to, we can't look at it, everything as an either or. And right now with telehealth sitting right in front of us, it's helping people realize how do we have both the care we need for the hands-on when we need it, and when can we leverage techno- uh, te- telehealth and the virtual healthcare? Because we need both, and um, get 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 their thinking to think both instead of hanging on to what has always been in the past. And you know, we've mentioned that you know, with the pandemic, we've seen some shifts in telehealth. I think it's been really great. Um, so now I just think the question is, how do we really leverage that to help? really keep that telehealth going forward and help people look at it in a different way. And I think the payment model definitely is a critical piece of it. Well, and I think too, you know, what we know about polarities is there's wisdom and resistance. So there's, there's things there that they're concerned about, right. That have great value that we have to listen to and learn about. And I think when we can, we can do that, right? When we can hear the concerns, when we can validate that those are valid concerns and we can address that and get, right, what we're looking for, you know, for the good of the country and the good of the people and healthcare, right? When we can, when we can shift to that both and, then we can make forward movement. But until we address the fears yeah. and can, you know, demonstrate that they are concerns and they are valid, we can't, people won't shift until they feel right. They're being heard and that their concerns are understood and validated. Yeah. And and here's a case in point. So um, a lot of commercial payers have said we'll pay for telehealth right now. They're paying at parity, right? So you get paid for a, a telehealth visit, what you get paid, got paid for a physical visit before the pandemic, but they want to f- drop back to paying less for telehealth. Well, first of all, is, is it really a lesser experience that you should pay less for? And then what do you do about the fact that this health system still has to keep up some physical enterprise because some people are going to need to access that physical enterprise. So on a unit cost basis, if you're paying them less for, let's call it half of what they do, how are they going to keep the rest of the system up and running? You know, you can't just in a draconian way say, we're going to cut the price of this. Right. we got to work through this together. Uh, and I think the only model that anybody's come up with that seems to make any sense is this population-based payment model. Mm-hmm. So you're guaranteed a certain amount of money, and then you say to the system, you're in charge of figuring mm-hmm. this out. You figure this out. With the way Kaiser is figuring this out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that's I, I don't know that there's any other way forward, but it needs everybody together um, working this through and understanding we're going to pay for a lot, how do we create the incentives to pay for it in the most rational way? Yeah. Well, and there's beliefs, right? There's old beliefs that if I'm not sitting with you, then this is a lesser experience. And that's the belief we've got to bust. We've got to bust that belief that that each visit, whether it's face-to-face, hands-on, 
or it's technology supported is a value-based experience. And that's the belief that's got to be busted. Yeah, particularly for, you know, I mean, most of us are living this. Yeah. I have a primary care doctor I like a lot. When I go see her, if she, if, if there are two times when she looks me directly in the eye, that's a lot. The rest of the time she's typing away and she even has a scribe, right? Oh, wow. so, you know, this notion that somehow there's something around a 12 minute visit that is so perfect that we must continue to pay for that but that if we had it if i had if we turned that into a telehealth visit it would be less i bet you i'd see more of her face to face if we were doing it by telehealth so it's just we just really have to blow up these old old paradigms and just say what what's reality and what and frankly what reality do we want to create right Uh, right Yeah. Yeah. You know, and recently I had an experience, um, Susan, with my mother who, because of the pandemic, um, I sat with her because I'm a nurse and she had a physician call her and we had to explore different treatment options. And I was sort of blown away by the whole experience because the physician couldn't see my mother. She kept having to ask her questions and ask her questions. And I thought, I don't know if that would have happened in the same way to in a face-to-face meeting. So even technology with the telephone, I saw the value of it in a way that I hadn't probably seen it before. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. A lot, a lot to do, and a, but a lot of good reasons to keep yeah. moving forward, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, and one of the things we've kind of lightly touched on Mm-hmm. is um, is this, you know, kind of the tension between transforming practice and education, right, mm-hmm. for healthcare, because we can't just expect the practitioners to continue if we're going to change the whole way healthcare is delivered and advancing and telehealth and new roles and all of these things, right? So it's that combination, the both and of the practicing clinician and educating them to be the future workforce. So tell us what insights have you had about addressing these things simultaneously, those that are in practice and those that are being prepared for practice? What are you seeing as far as trends? Yeah, it's a a real um, quandary because not to put too fine a point on it, a, a lot of the people in charge of educating uh, today's students in any uh, aspect of healthcare are, you know, sometimes 20 years out of practice themselves, right? They've moved out of practice, many of them, some, not all, I mean, some stay very clinically active, but others don't. Uh, and they're a little spooked by some of these changes. Uh, they don't really necessarily understand the technology uh, and, and the way it is changing the capabilities of healthcare. Um, I just uh, had a phone call this morning with a friend who's just been a work- physician, longtime physician, who's been working with one of the big tech companies. And basically, based on his experience, he thinks that we're going to have a very, very different model of even diagnosing cancer in the future that is probably going to find a lot of cancers before people even know they have them. Mm. Now, we know that that's the case now, but we're going to have an even greater capability at a genetic and genomic and proteomic and other level to identify very early cancers and take steps to care for that. Well, if you think about, you know, everybody who's maybe training uh, oncologists today, they don't, have a handle on all of this. None of us really has a handle on all of it. So, so if you're training, let's say you're running an oncology residency program today, odds are it's probably hospital-based, exclusively hospital-based. You're not training people to do cancer care without walls, right? Right. Um, you're, you're, you just can't even grasp this. So how do you create... Um, and instill, I think, in students the notion that we're going to teach you what we know now, but you better darn well understand practice is going to change. The minute you walk out the door, you're going to see stuff that we never even talked about here, right? Right. Uh, And you're going to have to be constantly 
reinventing yourself as a clinician. It's just the reality. And you got to be prepared for ongoing, you know, continuing medical education, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, and, and, and thinking innovatively. And I almost think that's in a way the most important message that uh, people who are training young clinicians today can impart to them, which is that don't take anything as a fixed point right now in healthcare because it's going to change and be open-minded to change and understand it's going to change. And that may mean it's going to change your, your life as a clinician. I mean, if you talk to a radiologist today, many of them are legitimately concerned about whether they're going to be put out of business by artificial intelligence. Well, I don't think they'll be put out of business but I think that the role of a radiologist is going to change massively because we already know we have machines that read radiological scans better than human beings do, more mm -hmm. consistently than human beings do. So what that tells you is if you were a radiologist doing run-of-the-mill scans, you probably got to up your game right now because that is going to be replaced by a machine. So instilling that in in uh, peop in people and giving them, having them be more engaged in, say, hands-on delivery system redesign themselves as a learning activity. I think as more and more curriculums go in that direction, that will better prepare students for what the reality is going to be in the, their future years in clinical practice, more so than saying, here's a fixed body of knowledge our job is to inject this into you and then you'll be fine as clinicians because that's just not the way the world is going to work. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we think about this in regards to the telehealth piece too. I mean, how you engage with somebody through telehealth is a whole other skill level as well, right? Like it's not just we're trained for the hands-on, the face-to-face. -face. So you really have to get that advanced training of how do you read people over the, you know, <clears throat> over the internet, over Zoom? How do you, you know, just how do you engage in a different way? And we've struggled with the engagement already, to your point, your doctor not looking at you, right? Having their face in the computer. Like we've already had that struggle when we're face-to-face, -face, let alone when we're over the internet. So I think those are, again, additional skills, right? There's a lot of skills to be to be learned as well, to just function in this new way, in this new world of healthcare without a law. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we've kind of touched on this too. Lastly, we know like change happens locally and globally, <laughs> right? Um, so what are some of the major policy changes that you think are most needed right now at both the local and the global level? Well, global as in national for, yeah. for yeah, starters. For starters. <laughs> I do think, I, and I, I know that uh, the folks who are coming into the Biden administration who are going to be at CMS and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation are thinking a lot about this. Is It's really, okay, so we've had this 25-year uh, experiment of moving to value-based payment, particularly in the Medicare program. How how far have we gotten? We've gotten some distance. We need to move a whole lot faster. So how do we do that? Do we uh, consolidate the number of payment models that we're bringing out and testing? Uh, do we place bigger bets on fewer models? Do we make more of these models mandatory? Do we just say, I mean... Let's recognize that the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund will be exhausted in two years, right? It's The trust fund is gone. Uh, so basically what that means is that the money, it's been true for several years, the money coming in through the payroll tax to fund the Medicare hospital program isn't enough to fund hospital expenditures. And now we don't have any, uh, in effect, loans that were made to the trust fund in the past from all of us as taxpayers to pretend that we can finance that anymore, right? That right. game's over. So we've got to figure out a new way to finance the Medicare program. 
if we're going to find it, do we want to still have a dedicated stream that goes to hospitals? Or do we want to think of another way to do this? Are we really utterly persuaded that we need every hospital bed in America that we now have exactly as it now exists? I'm not, right? How do we get the resources into the system and let the system figure out, okay, how many hospitals do we need? How much inpatient capacity do we need? Let's take this pandemic, right? We know it's not realistic to think that we're always going to have in all times enough hospital beds to house people in a pandemic. That wouldn't make any sense. What would make sense is to figure out how we have surge capacity, right, better in the future. How do we plan for that? Because we know we're going to need that. So how do we plan for surge capacity in a, in a more predictable and regular way, not just by propping up the number of beds that we have now. Uh, so we've got to start thinking about, you know, how do we take the resources and put them in the hands of a system and create something that is more rational and not just dedicated to structures that have outlived maybe their usefulness. Um, so I think that's number one. And I think um, if we just did that, and that would be Herculean feat to do just that, we would start to create this, uh, this change process, or I shouldn't say create it because it's already underway, accelerate this change process around the country that's happening anyway. You know, there is not one of the big tech companies that isn't putting big bets on healthcare. And if I were sitting there running a small hospital system, I would be thinking seriously about the likelihood that I'm going to be disintermediated by a technology company. I mean, Amazon is already trying to recruit other employers, large employers, to use the platform it has built to do telehealth for its own employees. Okay? Mm-hmm. If I'm a, running a little primary care practice someplace, don't I need to have cognizance that that's going on don't i need to understand that that force is probably going to be greater than anything i can do by lobbying my state legislature to keep me in existence so i think you know but i i think we could let this happen by just letting market forces prevail or i think we could think kind of systematically as a country what do we want to do with this? How do we want to get healthcare to parts of the country where it's not going to go or it doesn't exist now in sufficient numbers? You know, what do we need to do to basically create the capability for systems like this to grow up in more um, underserved areas of the country? All of that is going to require some really systematic thinking. And I know the notion of planning for healthcare went drastically out of fashion in this country in the 80s and 90s, I think to the degree that at least on a state level, states can come back into the game and start thinking, let's do some planning here for where we think we need to have healthcare resources exist, where we don't think they need to exist anymore, how they need to change, etc. And you can count really on one hand the number of states that have any organized effort to do that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You just give us so much to think about, Susan. (laughs) You stunned us into silence. (laughs) (laughs) Our wheels are spinning. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, these are tough. And especially, you know, I, again, I think that the pandemic, uh, it, it, I, I just want to mention, we had a chapter in our Healthcare Without Walls book in 2018 about what healthcare without walls could look like in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we had a scenario uh, that uh, posited that uh, suddenly word emerged out of China of a mysterious new form of flu. We, we, we called it flu. We didn't we weren't smart enough to think about coronaviruses, but um, and then and how would you think about these capabilities in a pandemic? One of the things that we suggested would happen is that people 
that would experience a lot of social isolation, would be very lonely, uh, would be obviously panicked. So what could we do in terms of uh, communication with them on a virtual basis from a public health perspective? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, the kinds of things that if, if only, right, if only we could redo this pandemic and bring to bear some of those capabilities or even things like uh, being able to distribute on a rapid basis um, some rapid, rapid tests for the, the virus. Now, we know we finally are getting 10 months into it, we finally getting some of these home-based and self-administered tests, but we still don't have really a mechanism for delivering them to people. You know, where was the thinking of sort of healthcare without walls early on in the pandemic to figure out how we were going to deal with this, or even for that matter, vaccine distribution? I mean, I was just joking with a friend the other day, I, I can get online today and order something from Amazon that will be on my door in two hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. What if, what if I, what if we had engaged Amazon in vaccine delivery, where you you made an appointment on Amazon to have a, 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 a Amazon driver drive the nurse to your house, right? <laughs> it, it's not inconceivable that we couldn't have thought of things like this, right? And right. probably by engaging those kinds of capabilities in the private sector, we probably could have pulled this off in a better way than we're doing now. Well, that brings, brings it back to what you were saying earlier, Susan, about having the time to plan and be proactive instead of reactive all the time with what would be a desirable healthcare system of the future, you know, especially given everything we've learned in the last year. So Oh, my goodness. Like Tracy said, we could talk to you all day, but we're going to have to close this podcast pretty soon. (laughs) But before we do, I just, you know, so much of what you do is um, you just bring that real policy um, perspective and how it's so important because it impacts decisions and payment and regulations. What would you say to healthcare leaders today uh, who want to get more involved with policy and advocacy? If you're going to give them, you know, a piece of advice, what, what would it be? Well, you you can always um, get involved where you are. And the what advice I've given to healthcare leaders uh, over time is don't don't uh, underestimate what you know, and what you know and what you understand from your uh, perspective gets in the way of your ability to innovate, gets in the way of your ability to change. It doesn't mean that you have all the answers, and it doesn't mean that you're always right, right? But to the degree that you've got some uh, knowledge and mastery, at least of your experience, connect with the people who are in and around your area who can make a difference. You know, whether that's your local uh, officials at at the county level, whether it's state officials in particular, um, your 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 governor, your legislators. You know, get to know those people, get to know if you don't already know them, get to understand what they know and what they're thinking. And you'll be shocked at how little most of them know or understand about healthcare. Um, I'm shocked to this day uh, that there are people in Congress who who still don't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, um, et cetera. It's, it, it's, you know, and you can educate them. Uh, you can educate them, you can help them understand things from your perspective and the perspective of other stakeholders in the healthcare system. So just start there. And of course, very importantly, you know, keep abreast of what's happening, keep abreast of what's going on. A fraction of what is actually happening appears in the news media, (laughs) but that's a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, sites like the Kaiser Family Foundation's uh, websites, which just uh, uh, collect a p- ton of information on what's happening on health policy, publish a lot of information about health policy for free. Um, all of those things are really, really useful resources. But I, as I say, there's really no substitute for having these connections with the people who are in the in the role of having to make decisions and and explaining to them what realities are. 
uh, on the ground uh, in healthcare. Uh, there's often a big, vast gulf of understanding and misunderstanding between policymakers and, and what's happening in healthcare. And you got to start by closing that gap. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, just such strong advice. It really is. And then, you know, it just brings me back to the time piece too. Tracy and I had the had the privilege to uh, join other interprofessional colleagues to go to the Hill in 2018. And we had 84 visits as interprofessional colleagues, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists. It was so exciting, but you only had like 15 minutes. (laughs) So we'll have to have a big, uh, some more focus on that too, to do that learning with people that are in the field delivering care to really help shape policy as well. So that was really great advice. Well, this has been amazing. It really has. Um, Just the wealth of knowledge that you've had. But I think uh, what I'm really excited about is how you were able to kind of share the past, kind of like what got us here, um, what we're learning right now. I really liked your, you know, BC, DC, so we can prepare for AC. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope we see more of it this year. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. More to that. I think I'm just leaving with just such a heart filled with gratitude, Susan, for individuals like yourself, for the center, for the work that you're leading, for the visioning you're doing, for what you're advocating for, for every person in this country, right, who doesn't know the importance of these things, who doesn't have that vision and all of the work that you're doing to continue to fight the good fight, <laughs> so to speak, right? To keep pushing onward, to broaden people's perspectives and to help shift our thinking and our policies and our approaches to care delivery. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners and for continuing to do the significant work that you're doing. Well, and thanks to both of you for creating this phenomenal forum and for just holding up this whole notion of these polarities because they do suffuse our healthcare system. And unless we have a better understanding of them, uh, we won't make headway in understanding really what a path forward is to getting to a, a healthcare system that we can be even more proud of and accomplish even more good for humanity. Well, thank you again. And uh, for our listeners, that's a wrap for another Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And we'll see you on the next one. And we can't wait for you to listen to this one. Thank you, Susan. Thanks so much. Take care now. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks as always for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com, and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast.